Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, joined by the dynamic diehard reporter, Jessica Stone. Jessica, nice to see you. How are you? Matt with my gloves on. <laughs> All right. Rocky we music. Missed, we missed you on the Trippy show, that uh, Joe Trippy and Can't and get quite Trippy. as trippy without me, I know. But yeah, hey, see? Your dad did a great job. Well, yeah. Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's inimitable. Well, he's very Im- imitable, but anyway. Okay, we are co-produced by my pal Tristan Drew. And if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review and comments on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a shout on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We would love to hear from you. You may have heard the name Christy Smith mentioned on this program before. Assemblywoman Smith was the California State Assembly member and more recently ran for U.S. Congress in California's 25th District, which Republican Mike Garcia ultimately won by one of the thinnest margins in the country, 333 votes. Say it with me, that's less than one-tenth of one percent. I got to know Christy when she was serving in the State Assembly initially at the Home and Garden Show, and I'll tell a little story about that later. Uh, Christy then came and spoke with the Santa Cruz Valley Business Group and we got to know each other a little better that year uh, when she was serving in the assembly. Uh, and then I served on her small business advisory committee. And just recently, Christy has announced that she's running again in an attempt to unseat Mike Garcia as our representative in Congress. Christy Smith, what an honor to have you with us. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to be here with both of you. Thanks so much. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Well, I wanted to start by getting a little bit about your background. Now, wh- one of the things that I didn't know when I was doing some prep for this was that you were born in West Germany. I was, I was born in Germany. My dad was in the service um, during Vietnam. He didn't see combat, but he was um, in a technical position working on um, radar communication and uh, had married my mom and, and she went over and lived with him on base, but I was uh, married, no, they were married, but I was born in a, a German army hospital. And then it was Germany to Indiana? Germany to Indiana when I was six months old. Um, Both parents were originally from the Midwest and my dad from Kentucky. And uh, yes, I was spent from six months until 10 years uh, growing up in Indiana with grandparents and cousins and all that great stuff, uh, getting my Midwestern sensibility and stripes. And then my dad got a job out here in California. So we moved to California in October of 79. Oh, so you were... You were barely 10 years old at that point. Yeah, yeah. I was a, I'm a transplant, almost qualify as a native, but not, not quite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at a certain point, you're a naturalized Santa Claritan. <laughs> yeah. And then t- you, you really are uh, Santa Clarita, California 25 through and through, um, Hart High School, COC, stayed in SoCal to go to UCLA. I'd love for you to take me through some of that, um, your, your education and uh, what your focus was coming out of college? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you know, because you, you've been raising your kids here, it is um, the great kind of suburban community that a lot of people want to be able to raise kids in. Incredibly safe, um, great, well-funded public schools, beautiful parks and open space. Um, well-run local governments. I mean, at the time I moved here, we were still just under LA County, but then the city of Santa Clarita incorporated. Um, and so it, it was a great place, you know, to, to grow up, to kind of have that idyllic um, childhood. And then having that balance with what I had seen, you know, a little bit growing up in, in Indiana, when I lived in neighborhoods that weren't um, certainly as diverse as the one that I moved to here, you know, in California and met people from all over the world here in California that were part of our neighborhoods and thought, you know, just how amazing and cool that was. And so grateful to my parents for the breadth of experience that that has yeah. given to my life. But, uh, you know, like a lot of people who go into public service, the reason that I aspired to politics, first of all, was in fifth grade, you know, which is that first time that you get a bite at the apple of our founding fathers and our constitution and American history. History, just fell in love with it, just fell in love with how our government is structured, how amazing it is that it's open to everyone. Um, literally anyone can still dream and aspire to be president and get there. Um, and so knew that that's what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> Up till then, it, for some reason, it had been dentist. And then uh, fifth grade, that shifted and uh, dentist turned to public servant. But, um, you know, spent a lot of my time either working in, in groups that were politically affiliated or um, certainly a at Hart High School, um, you know, did my time in student government, which I love because it was just kind of small scale providing leadership, but to the campus in a really fun way. And then went to College of the Canyons, um, like a lot of kids facing decisions around college now. By then, my parents had divorced. Sadly, there was um, domestic violence in my home. My parents had split up. And although I qualified for a lot of uh, universities in state that I had applied to, I couldn't afford it. So went to COC as a student and um, worked three jobs to put myself through. I had a morning um, nanny babysitting job. I then um, went to class and took classes uh, till the end of the day. And then at the end of the day, had a job on campus um, in the, well, part, partly in the admissions office, partly in the counseling office. And then on the weekends, um, I worked as a server in um, an assisted living facility out here in Santa Clarita. So you know, know the value of hard work and, and dedication that it takes to get through college. But that was back then when you could do it, when you could work and, and afford to pay tuition. And now, you know, young people or people wanting to go back to school can't even do that with, with three jobs. So all of those experiences in life that I had along the way, what propelled me to keep going in public service, because I knew that the best way to make a difference in people's lives um, and help shape them was through government and where government is investing its resources and how it's supporting people. Now, Can I ask a question about pulling teeth? Because I think there might be an analogy between <laughs> dentistry and politics. If you had to pick one instance in your political career where you truly felt like you were doing an extraction, that was that challenging and keeping in mind that you didn't go through dentistry school. So maybe the anesthesia part might not have been part of it, although you might've wished that you could have go undergone <laughs> right. anesthesia. Right. Um, is there, you know, is there some sort of tenacity that it took to just really get an issue to the table and across the finish line that maybe has some parallels for you as in your political life? Oh, absolutely. And I love the question. That's, that was just fantastic. Um, a couple of things, but 
there were two of the bills that I carried as a freshman legislator in the state assembly were um, some big ones that were controversial. Uh, one was around California charter schools and making sure that we had more governing transparency and clarity in how charter schools operate in California. And um, since the Charter Schools Act had been enacted, it was 20 years and no one had really touched it. And the parameters, you know, they had, it was, it was leaky. It was a leaky bill and there were a lot of holes that needed filling in. And, and my, my bill was one that did that. And it took a heavy lift, especially for a freshman legislator coming in who didn't have the relationships in the institution um, and certainly not the relationships outside the building of all the people who were weighing in on the issue. Uh, but I was persistent, transparent, forthright, you know, kept uh, our charter schools association and, and their affiliates at the table through, you know, the whole conversation. Uh, and we finally got to a place where the bill passed um, and, you know, was implemented this last year. So, you know, that's one I was really proud of. And then there's another one uh, that I just recently got statistics on. In fact, um, it's to support victims of human trafficking from our state's victims compensation fund. And uh, it hadn't previously been done and through multiple cycles, other legislators had carried this bill. Um, it was a women's caucus priority bill and it had been to the governor's desk a few times but never gotten signed. And so it, the barriers to it were, you know, where's the funding gonna come from? And then can if we can find the funding, can we find a governor to sign it? And uh, we were able to accomplish both of those things. And like I said, just found out recently in its first year of implementation, um, it benefited about 75 victims of human trafficking in the state of California um, with grants that are about, you know, $13,000 each, but that's grant money that helps them restart their lives after they've been victimized um, in that system. So that was a one, you know, it, it took a lift, but it was worthwhile. And now to hear the outcome is, is pretty incredible. Okay. So I heard leaky bill. I thought plumber, but I won't go there. My punniness may not uh, carry us through the, the rest of our podcast interview here. One transformation that I was curious about was when you were a young adult and in your early voting life, you were a Republican and at one point transitioned to becoming a Democrat. What mm -hmm. ultimately led to that transition? Well, you know, growing up here in Santa Clarita, historically, it had been a more conservative, you know, suburban community. And so that those were the influences that that I grew up with. Um, and there wasn't a lot of very open conversation about politics. It was just sort of, you know, we're, we're all down for a government that, you know, works for everybody. But as I um, started to go through college, had greater experience in the world and, and through my learning, um, realized that there was a much more important and broader role uh, for government to play in people's lives than was supported by Republicans at that time. And certainly, you know, not now. And then also as a woman who is um, very affirmatively pro-choice, um, you know, that was one of the issues where the party started to go strictly in one direction and, and I was in another and just didn't really feel like there was a place for me in the party. So my first presidential uh, did vote for George Bush Sr. Still, as you know, I let you know, Corey, once I've got the, the Bush quail t-shirt in my closet still to prove it. Um, and, you know, I would like to see us get to a place in this country, though, where that's what the difference is between the two parties look like, where it's, you know, yes, we're going to disagree on issues and approaches and, and probably economic theories. But at the end of the day, uh, we're all in this pulling in one direction, ultimately for the good of the country. So 
as noted before, this district is a very closely divided district. In fact, I just saw recent uh, voting, uh, pu public records of, of um, voting, excuse me, public voting records that indicated Santa Clarita Valley is 48% Democrat, 47% uh, Republican and 5% Independent. We currently have a representative that seems to be legis uh, governing in such a way that he's representing the furthest fringe of just one faction of, of his party. Are there views that you still hold that would be considered conservative, more conservative, maybe even to the right of the current Democratic Party? Um, I, I think when it comes to some economic issues, that's where I'm more centrist leaning. Um, not a big fan or supporter of the notion that trickle down economics has served us well by any stretch of the imagination because I don't think that's where we are. But I think when it comes to um, competitive business practices and in the business environment, and you and I have discussed this, you know, with you serving with me, it's, you know, sometimes the hand of regulation becomes so overly burdensome and not supportive uh, to business in ways that hold people back and hold back innovation. And it's, it's just something we need to be continually mindful of. It's something that, um, you know, tends to be associated more with uh, Republicanism than, you know, uh, than Democrats, but certainly there are Democrats who are business-minded and, and we think about it, um, you know, but right now I, you know, for people who may have gotten past them, this this Republican Party in their last convention didn't ratify a, a platform. Um, they just went forward with, uh, you know, nominating uh, Trump as their presidential nominee and didn't really address um, many of the huge topics, you know, burdening the country right now. And so I, I don't know, honestly, where Republicans stand on some things, you know, local Republicans, if you engage them, you'll, you'll get answers, um, you know, at the city level or what have you. But from the federal perspective, I really don't know what it is that Republicans are for these days. Let me bring up um, something along those lines. Of course, your current Congressman, Mike Garcia, has been rated by Project 538 as pretty, uh, pretty strong supporter of the Trump administration's policies. I think he voted 100% along with them in the 117th, 81% in the uh, 116th Congress the last two years. Um, and I think in a district that is so close as the percentages that Corey just laid out, I wonder what you would what you're telling voters about your ability to buck the Democratic Party machine in the House. Um, you're running to um, represent your constituents, um, but are you willing to part ways with Nancy Pelosi and the House majority in some tangible ways if it serves your constituents? And what might those be? Sure. Well, I mean, a great example that I have of that here in California was um, at the end of the last legislative year when I was in the assembly, uh, we were on budget votes and we could foresee the devastation that COVID might have um, had on our, on our economy here in California. And one of the budget proposals was to limit small businesses being able to deduct losses uh, over the three-year period that they ordinarily would. And to me, to have said that as a state, for the right reasons, you know, we put these health practices and procedures and public health requirements and guidelines in place that really, really impacted small business the most. 
to have then limited the extent to which they could find any relief in our tax system um, until that was released just didn't seem right with me. So that was one vote where I decidedly voted against party lines. And, and when you do that, you need to reach out to party leadership to let them know um, that you plan to do it and the why uh, you're going to do it. And very often it comes with consequences and which in my case it did, I was removed from a leadership spot um, because I, I didn't go with the caucus on, on that budget. Vote, but I don't regret it, and and I would have done it again. And you know, it, it comes down to having guiding principles in in government. And my guiding principles are: do the greatest amount of good that you can for the greatest number of people with the resources that you have at hand and you have at your disposal. And sometimes those things don't line up. And so you've got to make really tough policy decisions about, okay, this, this seems well-intentioned, but do we have enough money to carry it out? And does it have any unintended consequences that are going to be negative for people that we didn't intend to capture in whatever this piece of legislation is? So um, it's important to do the work well and to really understand all of the aspects of public policy, the economic implications, as well as the societal implications and make sure that you've tried to think all that through and process it to the greatest extent possible before you take a vote. I, I was really curious about that because I can attest to your inclusive way of governing. If I remember correctly, I think the way that I introduced myself was, hi, I'm Corey and I didn't vote for you. <laughs> um, you right. know, and I, I told you why is, is because I, I felt that we needed some conservative uh, f fiscally conservative voices in the state legislature. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, largely the reason as a small business owner, and to your credit, not only did we have a very uh, winsome, engaging conversation there at the, the home and garden show, um, you then had a long conversation with my precocious 20 year old, well, she was 18 or 17 at the time, daughter at the yeah. time. Um, and uh, you also went as far as including me on the small business committee, uh, mm -hmm. when you were in the assembly. And I did see that some of the things that we discussed, we were a diverse small group of small business owners from every part of the political spectrum. And we did see that some of what we discussed in that room from all of those diverse voices got included in legislation that you were supporting. I was curious, so, so you just discussed it just now a little bit, what that cost you? How, how did you, uh, why did you choose to go about it in a more truly inclusive manner? And what did that cost you politically? You know, that's a really good question. And I, what it gives me the opportunity to talk about is how concerned I am right now for where our country's politics have gone and how absolutely polarized they are. You know, it's one thing to, to choose up red team or blue team in the heat of, a, of an election battle. Um, but once that person's elected, it is their job to govern for everyone. And what we're not seeing, I think, in a lot of our elected officials is this notion that they are governing for everyone. Um, I would be remiss if I left off about half of my constituency because some of them may not agree with my approach to things when I would be a much better legislator if I gave them a seat at my table and understood their perspective, where they're coming from. And again, maybe there are implications that I haven't thought about, about a decision that I'm going to make and how it impacts, you know, this person's life. And so that, you know, also part of why I approached governance with these advisory councils. So you were on small business, but I also had them in public safety and education, um, worked extensively with our nonprofits in the community to make sure that I was getting that well-rounded view of all the things that were going on in the community to inform my decisions. Uh, to do otherwise would have been irresponsible, would have been partisan, sure, 
um, but not the responsible thing to do when it comes to the job of, of being a legislator. Yeah. So I got to tell you, um, I live in Washington. Uh, I may be much more jaded than both of you. Um, I think you're going to be so frustrated here based on that response, like brick wall after brick wall. Um, and so I guess I wonder, have you reached out to people like a Susan Collins or a Lisa Murkowski or a Joe Manchin or, um, and we don't have many blue dog, we don't have any blue dog Democrats. Um, you, I understand the point about how you need to campaign and how you need, you want to serve your constituents. Um, but, but the game is even more red team, blue team here to the point where the only leverage you might have is if you become one of those centrist voices like the three people I just mentioned that can that can get something for your district because you're the deciding vote, which is harder to do in the House than it is in the Senate. So I just wonder if you've got if you talk to anybody who's been in that position about, you know, what what does it take? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I've reached out um, across the Democratic caucus um, to be sure. And there is there's you know, there's a, a more centrist, more moderate faction. There's also progressives who I have spoken with and, and agree with them on um, a whole host of issues. Uh, and so I think it's important for us to re always remember, though, that at the federal government level, the founding fathers and subsequent changes to our constitution and how we govern are intended for us to move incrementally, um, to not take huge swings that are hard to recover from if they go wrong. And so just acknowledging that that's what I'm committing to, right, is a process that's going to take a long time, that a lot of times it's going to be about coalition building, and you might have a bill in mind or even an, an amendment to a measure that you're going to have to work really hard for right? You're going to have to take a lot of folks to, to sit down and have a coffee, make a lot of phone calls and do that hard work. But it's through that coalition building and consensus building where the good governance happens. And I want to go to Washington to be one of those people who reinvests in that notion. I think I see it uh, beginning to break down in a number of ways. I, I appreciate that you're jaded. I get it. You know, maybe I would be, um, you know, after a decade of hard work. But I do know, you know, some very long serving members who have been there and who have been successful uh, from both parties and and still go every week and, and gut it out because the work is worthwhile. So um, I, I'm still optimistic for now. I would say if I gave you some unsolicited advice, which you didn't <laughs> ask for, uh, but I, I want to give it to you anyway, <laughs> is, um, you know, what is your level of commitment to being here? Because you want to be in your district, but I think a big piece of why members of Congress are not talking to each other is because they're not living near each other anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I do, I do think that's part of it. And I certainly, I mean, I recognize that even with the short trip that I was taking weekly to Sacramento, which is only an hour flight, but I was there for sometimes five days a week. It takes a toll on your relationships in the district and both things are equally important. Yeah. Um, and I've heard rumblings over the last year that there might be some consideration given to the congressional calendar and what that looks like to help members try to find, you know, that right balance. And I think it's certainly something uh, worth looking at and, and investing in. Um, being all the way on the opposite coast, that is going to be a huge challenge yeah. because we do want to be in district, right, and be here for part of that. But you're, you're absolutely right. I think members who fly in, take votes, sit in committee, you know, they're not really having time to build Build those relationships and have those conversations, it does impact the work. Absolutely. And your style of governing needs that, it seems to me. Absolutely. Yeah. There is the problem solvers caucus and, and growing movements like that that indicate 
there are more folks than maybe that that don't necessarily get as much attention as you know somebody who says something that you know they, they that puts them who on the Sean Hannity about, show. Corey? You know, what's that? <laughs> who could you be talking about there, Corey? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's a, it's a growing movement, I, and I think the right of center, former Republicans. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about them here on this program: the Lincoln Project, the Bulwark, the Dispatch, media outlets, PACs. Um, there are all kinds of, you know, we just interviewed Elizabeth Newman, uh, the, you know, GOP accountability project. So I think that there's a lot of goodwilled people that really, that have a lot of experience in government and in the private sector that want to cut through what seems to be dominating the, the headlines, uh, what seems to be dominating yeah. the agenda in Congress. I have yeah. a question about how you're going to end up threading a really difficult needle. Uh, and we are, again, we are, California 25 is a uniquely purple district, I think. Um, not I think, I, it's a purple district just based on the numbers and, and how close a lot of these elections are. We don't know how it's going to be redrawn, but in order to get through a primary, there are a few different challenges. One is, one is just the money. I mean, mm -hmm. I, we saw, and I know Jessica has a couple questions about this, but we saw that uh, Mike Garcia raised just under $10 million for the last campaign between the primary and, and the general. Um, and you, you, you raised a, a pretty healthy chunk of money as well. That's got to be difficult. But part of that is being able to win over the base, those folks who are going to donate large, large, you know, uh, large donations, as well as enough of the passionate base who are donating $100 at a time and $25 at a time and $5 at a time. In order to do that, you have to be pretty orthodox uh, as a Democrat. But in order to effectively represent the the district, um, your your rhetoric in the general has to calibrate a little bit toward the center. How do you what? How do you do that? How do you how do you do that balancing act? A sailing analogy, I think, is in order here. Tacking, tacking this way. <laughs> tacking, yeah. yeah. Tacking. Uh, look. It, Here's the thing. I mean, I, I think you know this about me, Corey, but I don't take lobbyist money and I don't take corporate PAC money. Uh, so that changes the dynamic for me. So literally I am just directly to donors. Um, but here's the thing. I wouldn't underestimate the savvy of donors. They know that candidates run in districts like mine all the time. And that means a more nuanced approach to the work. And it means sometimes threading the needle and probably not being with any particular donors um, political agenda 100% of the time. And most of the people by and large, most of the people who donate that I speak with are like that, like they just get it, they get politics writ large and, and how hard districts like these are. Um, you know, the challenge now is that we have to do it at all. When you're talking about those kind of millions of dollars, um, he raised 10, I raised nearly six. Um, he ran for a year longer than I did though, unfortunately, because of, of what happened with Katie Hill. Um, you know, th this is where we got to start talking about money in our politics. And I say this as someone who was a school board member when I started my time as a public servant. And so I can tell you how many teacher salaries that is, right? I can tell you how many upgrades to a school building, $10 million will buy you uh, a whole host of other investments that we should be making in our communities and in our neighborhoods with that money instead of having to dump it all 
into a process that most Americans um, want to participate in anyway. So I'm a big fan and proponent right now of what's happening with HR1. I would like to see it all go further. I think there should be hard caps and hard spending limits on all of these races, including the fact that you know independent expenditure committees can come in and just dump unlimited amounts of undisclosed money into races like mine to try to sway folks. Uh, but we need to change it because if we're going to restore governance and leadership to the voters, to the people whose hands it should be in, um, there needs to be a lot more balance in that system. And we've got to stop wasting these resources. So, so you talked about the money that you don't take, um, but some money that you definitely do take is from unions. A lot of your funding comes mm -hmm. from the unions, in particular, uh, the largest teachers union, the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, they gave you about $25,000 uh, last election cycle. Um, obviously, Randy Weingarten, the, the leader of, of the AFT and the spokesperson for AFT has been heavily in the news because of COVID and the, and the school shutdowns. And I wonder what you think about um, the criticism of the union and its participation in being slow to reopen schools and the, and the ensuing concerns about child, children and education, particularly in urban populations. Yeah, well, I appreciate that question um, a lot because, you know, as someone who was governing during the crisis and recognizing that in the beginning of the COVID crisis, just the, the actual data set was so limited. We were making decisions based on what public health officials thought the virus was doing, was capable of, how fast it was spreading. So getting in real time, you know, the different systems and metrics to to chase that, to track it, to have testing and so on, we were kind of flying blind to a certain extent. And teachers unions, like every union, one of their primary goals is to keep their workforce safe. And you know, we're, we're having this big national conversation right now about investment in infrastructure. And there are school buildings across this country that are decades out of date with their ventilation systems, with heating, with air conditioning, that are so woefully underfunded that maybe they don't even get cleaned by a custodian every night, right? Maybe this is an every other night prospect. And so sending a, a teaching force back into classrooms with an insufficient data set, with not knowing what this virus was going to do in the bodies of children and, and teenagers and how fast it could you know, move there, teachers unions across this country did the right thing to keep their teachers safe. Now, the challenge was that some of these same school districts weren't resourced enough to put a piece of technology or equipment in every student's hand so that they could effectively do class online, right? There are, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of kids across this country that don't have broadband access, don't have Wi-Fi access, and they certainly don't have a piece of equipment at home that would allow them to log in for class. So education, like so many other aspects of society that we found out during this crisis still have these huge uncovered gaps um, you know, it was brought to light by our country's teachers. And I, what I was hoping would be the case is that this would be an aha moment for the American population to say, wow, you know, we respect our teachers because that that's consistently the case in polling. You know, most people will say, I trust my child's classroom teacher, but then somehow when it gets aggregated into teachers unions, people suddenly lose faith and trust. Um, and, and it just shouldn't be the case. That, that was teachers speaking out very loudly and clearly about, insufficient support in our schools, crumbling infrastructure, and things that weren't going to keep them safe 
you know, in the midst of the worst of the crisis. And now you see districts moving um, together towards getting schools reopened next year, hopefully tracking down a lot of these young people that we lost track of them or their families during this crisis, making sure they re-enroll in school. Um, and then a lot of investment, especially here in California, in making sure that those kids that we missed or that missed out um, because, you know, the online learning wasn't quite enough for them that, that we get them caught up. What do you say to the parents who really felt, and, and I heard from these parents where I live, that they felt like the, the union was advocating more for the teachers than for their students in those situations? Because there was a tipping point. I, I understand the argument you're making at the beginning where none of us had good information. You could argue we still have a lot of mixed messages. Um, but to those parents who, who said, you know, this is the only place my kid gets education, sometimes food, counseling, other therapies, and I've been totally cut off from that um, with, with meager results in terms of the technological uh, fail, uh, you know, uh, attempts to sort of mitigate that. Um, what do you say to them? Yeah, you know what? I wouldn't lay that at the feet of teachers, though, because teachers are part of a system. Um, where elected school board officials and school districts are responsible for carrying out all of that other programming. And so, you know, in the communities where I am, I several times um, I went to schools that were doing meal distribution and, and they would provide meals for the entire family worth of kids. It would have um, a snack for the afternoon, breakfast for the next day and a lunch. Um, and schools went way above and beyond in many instances. But what we did see in terms of that infrastructure, there were breakdowns in some communities. And again, that goes to the fact that we don't invest in our school systems here like other countries do. And so when there is a challenge of this magnitude, it is hard to fill in all of those gaps to meet the needs of you know, the most struggling students, the students um, who are on a special ed plan. Uh, and so we know we need to do better and we need to be better prepared, hopefully for not another pandemic, but certainly for any kind of emergency that takes kids out of the regular classroom. I mean, no doubt though, this was, a, it was a huge, huge challenge for families. And frankly, the other thing we recognized is how much we rely on our public school system as one of our main forms of child care yeah. in this country, you know, and that's something we've got to address. Let me ask you, because you did have experience at the Department of Education, the Clinton administration, um, and you have spent a lot of time in uh, Santa Clarita area schools. What do you think needs to be the prescription um, for recovering the lost learning for our students so that they are competitive with people uh, from other countries around the world? I think it's gonna be a matter of uh, good assessments and patience and possibly adding staffing. So I, you know, was very pleased to see the amount, you know, is dedicated towards education in the American Rescue Plan. I know um, districts are going to be able to put that money to good use. In some school districts, you do see them extending now into a summer learning loss session, which I think is really promising. Um, I think we will probably more likely see a lot of that, um, like spring break time, winter break time, and then on into next summer as teachers have kids back in the classroom for a full year and they can kind of do a more more thorough assessment of what the learning loss was. Uh, but the other thing that I have said to, to folks, especially parents who were the most concerned, is we have to recognize how resilient our kids are and how capable they are of catching up. And it's not necessarily always, you know, the minutes on the clock that pass by that guarantee whether or not uh, they're going to succeed, but it's the amount of support that they are getting at home and in the classroom and people committed, you know, to make sure that they get the achievement to the level where it needs to be. So again, it's, 
I, I hope we come to this work as kids go back to school now and, and next fall, just recognizing how much um, support our teachers need, how much um, diligence I would like to see, you know, communities come to the table with as they're going to their school board meetings and being engaged in, in what that looks like. There's been a lot of rhetoric uh, from elected officials and conservative pundits who use canards. There, were, there was recently a bipartisan bill in Congress that was just to authorize a $1 billion a year in grants to pay for more civics and history programs that teach children. And one of the reactions that came from, it was Stanley Kurtz. Uh, he was talking to Breitbart News and wrote for the National Review and used terms like woke education, Marxist-based philosophy, white privilege, gender fluidity, systemic racism, you know, and this was just a very anodyne <laughs> American as American pie, you know, as apple pie uh, civics education. How right. would you respond? Now, that's obviously uh, a canard, like I said, but how would you, that it represents uh genuine fear and concern on the part of, of parents uh, sending their kids to public schools. How might you respond to rhetoric like that? Well, sure. I mean, it, absolutely. It's a canard and it's, it's so dramatically overblown, I think, for political effect. And, it, you know, as much as our schools are a part of our, our system of public governance, I, I, it really, it doesn't serve any of us well to politicize what happens in the classroom um, to, to a large extent. Um, but I will tell you, one of the main motivating factors for me getting back into this race again, because it is not easy to run for Congress, it, it doesn't come with a whole lot of, you know, good times, but is this notion that my kids who are young adults, um, but certainly the generation behind them will inherit from all of us an America that is far more racially, economically, ethnically diverse than the one that we grew up in. And if we don't give them the fundamentals, the understanding of our basic governing institutions and how they are supposed to work to serve them, to help them protect one person, one vote and the rule of law, but to give them the tools and the skill set to talk about the really challenging issues of race, of social justice, of moving together as a unified country, regardless of those differences, we will set up this country for a future of failure. I'm not going to accept that. There are, there are ways we can do this, you know, through education, through sharing of evidence-based practices of how we approach these conversations in a meaningful way um, that lead to a better future and lead to, to kids being comfortable with who they are and, and where they are and not having those be, you know, the conversations that predominate all aspects of public policy, but for now they they have to, because while we have litigated race and social justice in this country for decades, um, we realize very starkly now that it is something that does have to be re-educated and re-litigated with every generation. So yeah. how do you avoid spending more time looking to the past than towards the future with respect to race? I, I think about, um, you know, the. The, what's shaping this bill, of course, is the ongoing conversation and sometimes controversy over teaching critical race theory, or mm -hmm. how do you, how do you, should you teach uh, the past uh, history of this country? Is, are we a racist country? I mean, I'm touching on, a, I'm dancing on sure. a lot of um, tough topics, um, and, and I'm sure you have to have your own convictions about those things, um, because that's part of what's motivating you to get in the ring. Sure. Well, I think, I, I think you cannot do it uh, without a backwards look. 
you know, we certainly um, have all learned substantially from slavery in the United States, from what happened in the Holocaust. Those lessons have to be part of that every generation now um, re-education on these issues and having people be learn to be critical critical of the history and critical of, of the leaders and the movements and the momentum that got us into those spaces where horrific things could happen like that, one human being to another, and how we move beyond it. And we move to a society where people can embrace difference, acknowledge difference without having it be a dividing line for every aspect of our lives. Um, and, and so I do think it's important. And I think, you know, these notions of we can't teach critical race theory are just dramatically overblown. If we care about the future of this country, these are conversations we have to have now. Are we a racist, are we a racist country? In some respects, we still are. There are remnants of institutional racism in a lot of our structures and systems in, in finance and in housing, um, in, in policing in some respects. And while we have moved and, and tried to be on a dedicated path to improvement, um, it is work that continually has to be done so that those standard expectations that have been historical don't rear their, their heads again and become bigger uh, than they should be. And it's, it's incredibly important. We, we do absolutely still have persistent racism in the country. One of the things I know that as an educator, you must have watched, especially with young adults and with your own experience going to college is the evolution of student lending. Um, and when you talk about um, unequal outcomes, uh, for education levels, you can see, you know, the changes in how school is funded. Um, and, and I wanted to get your take on, um, on student loan debt in particular. Student loan debt has now eclipsed credit card and auto loan debt, and it's second only to mortgage debt with about 1.7, so almost $2 trillion borrowed as of a recent Fed statistic. Uh, do you think there's a student debt bubble? Um, I do. I, I see it in um, young people my kids' age. And, you know, not only the notion that their generation, the millennial generation, I think owns now about 4% of our, our nation's GDP, um, certainly not enough for an entire generation to sustain itself on, yet they have the highest levels of debt. Um, a number of factors have lent themselves to it, the rising cost of higher education, um, the fact that we don't track young people um, adequately, we're not giving them enough support in high school to make those decisions about whether or not technical or vocational training might be a better path for them and then provide that to them in a free or affordable way versus those who who truly you know would benefit from being on a university path um, that end up with that kind of debt. Um, you know, I will be next week, I will be in San Diego for my own daughter's graduation. She is going into the teaching profession. Uh, so fortunately, um, you know, her father and I were in a position where we were able to cover some, borrow some, um, but she is borrowing a portion on her own and she knows what a significant responsibility that 
will be for her to pay that down, but also knows that, you know, she's likely to be able to find a job that will help her to do that. But for a lot of these young people, if they have not been given good information and advice, maybe they've gone to some kind of um, private institution that, that promised them career training with a job at the end, it doesn't always come through or even, you know, just a, a regular college degree. And there's still a lot to be said for that, for a, a wide, you know, liberal arts education that, that allows you to think more broadly about the world and be a critical thinker but it, it's coming at far too great a cost. And so we are, it is something we're absolutely gonna to have to grapple with as a country. Um, I, for one, would like to start by seeing more opportunities for young people to invest, to, to be able to earn as they go, um, to be able to work on campus or be able to work in the surrounding community to help uh, pay their way through college. But then certainly um, I, I think we all should, also should be considering a National Service Corps where people can uh, have that first attempt at um, you know, a meaningful career after college graduation, but also give back to the country at the same time and, and work down um, you know, what was spent on their behalf for their education. So there's no shortage of creative ways for us to deal with it. It's unfortunate that we got ourselves to the point uh, where this is such a burden on an entire generation, but I, I look forward to conversations about how we can improve it and, and make it better. So two points I would make that I've discovered um, about this this situation is that certainly greed from these um, from lenders has been a piece of this, but also the the, the federal backing of these student loans. Ninety two percent of them are backed by the by the U.S. government, and because that's essentially the taxpayers backing them, some people do argue that if the government didn't back these loans, that they're that the tuition would not be skyrocketing. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I, yeah, I understand that perspective. I also think uh, tuition probably would be skyrocketing because a lot of the same costs that drive costs for our business community, providing health insurance, um, employee wages, maintenance of facilities. I mean, here in our own UC system in California, we've got facilities um, where we've spent millions in recent years, but there's still millions of dollars of work to be done in rebuilding that university infrastructure for universities that have been there for decades. So, uh, you know, we, we just find ourselves in a, in a place where we're going to have to critically rethink um, how much subsidy and what, where the federal government invests its subsidy and, um, you know, perhaps backing these loans isn't the way to do it. I, maybe they need to be putting more side in direct grants and direct support to students, uh, but at the same time, investing in the critical infrastructure of the universities themselves to help bring some of those costs down. Although, which is not to be said that, you know, like any, any bureaucracy, any institution, you couldn't look through the American university system and find places where uh, costs should be brought down. But yeah. You also want to recognize that they are also drivers of, of innovation um, and technology and, and research in the country. And that also uh, is a tremendous value that I think we don't often talk about. Yeah, something especially I think you could say of the California school system. Um, right. One more question on that that I would ask you, if you're elected to represent California 25, you're, you're likely to have to vote on student loan forgiveness. Will mm -hmm. you support that? I will. I will. I want to make sure that we've got a, a plan to, to fund it. Uh, and then what the plan looks like going forward for future generations. I mean, it, it shouldn't, if it's a one and done, I think we've handled it wrong. If we're not at the same time looking at, okay, but then what happens for all of these college students who come next and making sure that they don't end up in the same position so that we're not doing this again a decade out. Um, that's a conversation that needs to be directly in tandem. 
Well, I appreciate the, the nuance there. <laughs> Thanks. Go ahead. Sorry, Corey. That's okay. I had the opportunity to ask several constituents here in California 25 if they had questions for you. And I was surprised to hear that more than one brought up the campaign, the 2020 campaign, something along sure. the lines of, I couldn't turn on the TV on uh, Sunday football without seeing Mike Garcia. I couldn't bring up a YouTube video without seeing Mike Garcia. I couldn't bring up Facebook without seeing Mike Garcia. And the complaint, if you want to call it that, was that they, you weren't as ubiquitous or uh, perhaps aggressive in your campaign. I'm curious right. if you uh, if you had it to do over again, which you actually do. <laughs> um, what are what are some of the things that you're going to do differently going forward? Well, it's a great question, and and people, you know, you know, I had these drive-through events here in the community, and so that was really because of COVID restrictions, our only way to engage with the public, and people would drive through and say, "Oh my gosh." they're nonstop attacking you on this, that, or the other thing. So that goes part and parcel with the question uh, about money though. And uh, you know, how much money is spent on these campaigns? He had 4 million more to spend plus independent expenditure committees coming in and really dropping a lot of money. Um, but there was also a, a real coming to terms in Washington DC on the democratic side about this move to digital. And it's been um, well demonstrated since that uh, Republican entities were investing um, in digital spaces where people were consuming their media at that point, especially because of COVID. Not everyone was sitting home and watching cable and broadcast TV. Most people now are streaming. They're getting content on their phones. That's how they're getting their news, their entertainment. And so being more present in those spaces is more important than ever. So that is one critical change that will happen uh, this time going forward is that I, I plan to have much more of a presence in those digital spaces than we had last time. Um, and kind of recognizing, especially here in the LA media market, you know, broadcast TV is uh, incredibly expensive. And so probably not the best use of campaign dollars. Yeah. Uh, but then also, you know, planning on being just personally present for town halls, for events where people can um, come and hear from me. We've had the opportunity to talk to some of the most successful uh, campaigners and strategists in the country. Uh, we just talked to Joe Trippi, I think I mentioned to you, who's been campaigning since before the Ted Kennedy 1980 presidential campaign. And, you know, even more recent, very recently got Doug Jones elected to the Senate in 2017. We also have had the opportunity to speak to folks like Reed Galen and Mike Madrid. Madrid had some specific advice, actually. He said um, that broadcast media is not a very efficient use especially in this district, because you're buying the LA market really, yeah. really expensive sense, and not yeah. really hitting your constituency. He had much mm -hmm. more specific uh, thoughts about who that proverbial 333 votes were. And he mm -hmm. thinks that it's, if we had to really laser in, it's college educated women in this um, in this district, but um, mm -hmm. that that's just the free advice. So if leave <laughs> yeah, it no, and it, you, no, no, and I like Mike a lot. He's he's usually spot on. Um, and when I won the state assembly seat, which is actually uh, just based on registration numbers, a, a harder district to win, it was very targeted digital communication, digital, yeah. and then, you know, specifically to constituencies like college educated women in some cases, um, you know, where you can, you can have a very specific messaging set and it works really well to tailor that messaging. Certainly in the Antelope Valley, um, there are multiple constituencies where it just would, would have served us better to have that tailored messaging. So we are doing that this time. One of the questions yep. I had for you is that you've said, and I, I've seen it, that there were 
multiple aggressive attacks. You could even say lies that were um, were said about you. I'd love to give you the opportunity to correct the record, maybe address some of those lies and um, unfairly aggressive attacks uh, and just set sure. the record straight. Yeah, I mean, we talked about one of them today. You know, you asked when I had crossed over and, and gone against my own party, and it was on that net operating loss vote. Um, and that's when I lost my committee leadership. Um, there were ads and, and articles saying that I had lost my committee leadership for other reasons. It, it simply wasn't true. Um, we hadn't had committee meetings, but that was because of COVID. We weren't in Sacramento. We weren't holding meetings um, in rooms with large groups of people. Um, one of the Republican go-tos in terms of strategy now though, and we saw it in red to blue races across the country, is to take your opponent's strength and try to turn it into their weakness. And for me, that has been that I have been a big public education advocate my entire career, um, have invested a lot of resource there, and it is a love and a passion of mine. So they went through public records and found years where, unfortunately, during the Great Recession, we had to issue layoff notices to teachers. Uh, and so they said, I fired teachers but I never voted to permanently fire a teacher. We gave layoff notices in the spring as we are required to do um, so that a teacher could find a new job by the following fall. But once we knew our state budget numbers by the end of June, all of those layoff notices were always rescinded. Well, of course, those NRCC ads and those Garcia ads never bothered to mention that those layoff notices were rescinded and teachers stayed on payroll. So. There was a lot of abuse of, of the truth, a lot of uh, reshaping of context that makes a difference in situations like these. And um, it's unfortunate and it's a huge disservice to voters. If you think that little of voters that you're just going to lead them astray for the purpose of getting a vote, what does that say about how you're gonna govern our country? So it's just not something that I have a tremendous amount of respect for at yeah. all. Where do you think some of those proverbial 333 votes are? You know, for me, it really was about not being able to knock on people's doors. Uh, we made a very deliberate decision to keep our volunteers and our voters safe because in California here in September, October, November of last year, we were at the beginning of one of those peaks again. We did not want to contribute um, to the growing COVID crisis. And so we kept our volunteers on the phone. Um, but, you know, if they were out knocking on doors, there were about 10,000 voters in this district who voted for President Biden, but didn't vote down ticket for me. And that's because we just didn't have that opportunity to have the conversation. Like, if you're, if you're supporting the Biden agenda, then this is the congressional candidate that you're going to want to send to Washington to help you get there. And um, that'll be different this time. You know, with COVID restrictions behind us, we're going to be able to have our volunteers out in the neighborhoods, again, making those meaningful connections, making sure that people do participate. I mean, the fascinating thing about this, though, is all those things considered, we still had the highest turnout for a congressional in this district that we've had. So that, I think, bodes well for us and really proud of this district that despite all the many challenges, they still got out there and, and voted. Uh, and I would also say there's probably 333 people at least with a little bit of buyer's remorse right now. So we're, we'll be talking to them too. Well, do you think that, I know for me, I, I was, I'll just be transparent. I was on election night, I was sort of rooting for the center holds result. It looked like a center holds result where the House, the Democrats lost a few seats, but held majority, but it looked like the Senate was going to go the Republicans way. Um, so, but as we got closer to Jan what hap ultimately happened on January 6th and then what, what's happened since then. Um, I, I did vote uh, 
you know, for at the national level, I did vote for Biden and, and for you. Um, at the local level, I still vote largely Republican. Uh, but um, it, I could see a lot of folks who think like me, conservative, fiscally, um, socially libertarian. I could see how folks might have voted uh, with, with Mike Garcia. Do you think a lot of those 10,000 voters who voted for Biden, but, but also with, with Mike here, um, do you think that how he voted for uh, to to overturn the election on January sixth and January seventh for P Pennsylvania and Arizona, how he voted for impe on impeachment, how he uh, vote, excuse me, some, what some of his public rhetoric. In fact, he started a caucus for quote unquote election integrity to sort of perpetuate um, all the uh, the big lie and the the rhetoric ar around that. Do you think that's an issue that's going to stick when it comes time to uh, to vote in the fall of of twenty twenty two? I absolutely do. And it's kind of, it was incredible um, in the days following that, the number of people who were sending me private message by social media or commenting on social media posts about their regret for exactly that reason. And the fact that not only did he make that decision on January 6th, even after the attack on the Capitol to stand with the others who, who voted against certification of election results, it is the fact that he has persisted in being one of those team players who is propagating you know, what's now being called the big lie. Um, and the big lie is a foundation for arguments around voter suppression measures. Uh, and that is just not I, conservative, liberal, centrist, libertarian. We have got to all agree that we are still a country that our fundamental belief is in one person, one vote and the rule of law. And our election systems have integrity. I've talked about it many times in my own race. You know, the official in Ventura County is an elected Republican who oversees the counting of the votes. And in Los Angeles County, it is someone who is appointed by, um, you know, a nearly all Democratic Board of Supervisors. Yet both of those people and their respective departments carried out to with remarkable transparency the final vote counting in the case of, of my race I, I felt completely confident was allowed to have attorneys present in both locations um, to be participating in that so you know and, and I've heard Garcia go on to you know ultra right-wing race video shows and talk about how well if we hadn't had lawyers in the room stuff would have gone sideways and it, it's simply not the case. You're talking about people who know how important their work is to maintaining people's faith and trust in our institutions of government. And we can't afford to shake that. We, we just can't. And so um, I, I do think that there are a lot of people who will hold that in particular against Mike Garcia. Yeah, that, there's a lot of folks who have questions because he keeps on talking about it and folks like him keep on talking about it. But, mm. you know, he can continue you know, agreeing with the um, with the big lie or perpetuating the big lie, but I'll I'll go with the conservative legal movement every time. I'll go with the Secretary of State, uh, the Republican Trump supporting Secretary of State of Georgia. I'll go with the um, the, the elections officials who just released thing. a statement in Arizona who said enough is enough. Four out of five of whom are Republican. Right. Uh, right. So I think the conservative legal movement, uh, by and large, up to the Supreme Court. I mean, in Mike's response about why he voted the way he did to overturn the election results of Pennsylvania, he said that um, state legislatures can't just willy-nilly make laws out of thin air. It was the Republican-led state legislature that passed the law that he was talking about in October of 2019. Uh, and then those same uh, Republican um, elected officials are the ones who objected to their own law that they passed in October of 2019. But suspiciously, I think, they didn't uh, object to it until 
after the election of 2020, over a year later. That's mm -hmm. why their case was dismissed unanimously uh, based right. on uh, the, the Latches doctrine, which is basically a bad faith, um, bad faith argument. But mm -hmm. th that's that's my pet peeve. I, we could do a whole yeah. other podcast just on that. <laughs> well, I'm right, sure and, the, uh, and it is it is left to the states right now. So if that's a conversation we need to have, is is how much of federal election protection needs to be left to the states? So that's a that's a valid conversation um, to have. But when it comes to you know those arguments uh, that he has made and others have made, uh, they're simply wrongheaded. A lot of them were passed by Republican legislatures, and those that weren't were passed by legislatures who knew that in the midst of the, the first global pandemic we've seen watching. in this country since the 1920s, we needed to protect people's access to vote in a presidential election. That's what it came down to. You need to leave the room. <laughs> Excuse me, my assistant is interrupting. <laughs> That's awesome. Close the door. Thank you for listening. That's you're you're right in Christie's wheelhouse, but, but uh, your daughters are just a little bit ahead of, of <laughs> Uh, Jessica Jr. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> three and six. I've got a ways to, to catch up. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Mine are three years <laughs> apart also. Nice. Okay. That's awesome. <laughs> Jess, did you have a follow-up question on that? Um, well, I had just been thinking about the, the recall and the politics around uh, Gavin Newsom, who I know endorsed you the last time you ran. And I wonder what, if any, impact there is with what's going on in California politics on you and your race um, I understand you won't be on the same ballot this fall, right. but um, how do you navigate that? Uh, well, I mean, I think first of all, by talking about it from this perspective of, of voter education, and I think a lot of the people who signed those petitions here in California to get this recall going in the first place, had they been told that, and I've heard estimates that vary widely, so low end $40 million to administer this recall statewide, all the way up to several hundred thousand dollars to hold this recall election, a lot of them, especially those who are fiscally conservative, would have said, yeah, no, thanks, we'll live with this for another year, right? That's that's just a rational decision that a lot of those people would have made had they known the true cost of this. But then when you just talk about it in, in simple government terms, and, and I'm not, I don't by any stretch of the imagination think that the recall folks are going to be successful. I think Gavin Newsom, who has done a phenomenal job, especially this year, stays in office. But even if they were successful, they would be getting a replacement governor for one year with a state legislature legislature that has super majorities in both houses of the opposing party, what do they think that that governor is going to be able to accomplish? I mean, sure, they can they can veto everything that comes out of, you know, both houses of the legislature in that final year, but mm -hmm. that's not going to serve them well, and it's not going to serve Californians well. So I think it, you know, for whatever reason, the movement happened, and I, I, th I do think a lot of it was political because you saw a lot of the the, the recall Newsom uh, trailers and, and tables and, and all of that kind of stuff in districts like mine that they know are going to be swing districts in 2022 to try to keep that that going. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's just it, it was it's very short sighted. It's going to end up being very costly to the state, millions of dollars that could be spent on a number of other worthwhile things, investing in our water infrastructure because we're in a drought now. Um, you know, it just it's, it's a big waste of, of time and resources. Do you have any sense of how the districts are going to be redrawn? We don't. Um, but one of the things that, you know, I think we as Californians can take a lot of solace 
herein is the, is the fact that it is done with an independent citizens redistricting committee. Uh, so when I was in the state legislature, they, the folks who helped put that together were very um, you know, transparent with us about the application process, making sure that we had opportunities to reach out to our constituencies and community members to have a really broad reach of um, enticing folks to serve and be a part of it. And the, the entire process happens with a really well thought out set of parameters that the commissioners should consider. They're given then just the statewide demographic data. And then after they do a series of draft maps, which which we'll probably see very late fall, early winter this year, the public gets to weigh in. So here in California, you know, these are not districts that are being cut with some backroom deal and then ratified by a legislature in the middle of the night. This process really belongs to California here. Uh, if anyone's interested, they should go to We Draw the Lines uh, to check it out um, and be a part of it. And it, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, you know, hard part is we will be losing a congressional seat, but the great part is, is that Californians get to weigh in on what that looks like. I noticed that there were, of the closest races in the 2020 election, there were a dozen Republican uh, congressmen, Congress members, who also scored a D or an F on one of my favorite resources here lately, the GOP accountability report card. And mm. our current congressman got a D minus. And he was also at the bottom of that list at less than one-tenth of 1%. Have I mentioned that stat before? <laughs> I'm showing my colors. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a true journalist like Jessica is. I can't, you know, the Jew from Jersey in me comes out and I just can't help like talking with my hands and saying, what the hell are you doing? You know, anyway, um, but I'm, I'm curious if you've been contacted by uh, groups like Operation 147 or uh, the, the GOP Accountability Project or any groups like that, because this really is one of those seats that, um, by any standard measure should be a, a big target. It is. And, and, and what I will say, not knowing too much about, you know, that, that scorecard that you mentioned though, there are groups like that all across the country. Um, a, a lot of them operate here in the state of California and some of them though, just, they end up with a really narrow focus. There's just a very small subset of issues that are incredibly important to them and a perfectly good, legislator who who plays by the book and wants to make sure that you know budgets are balanced and that laws make sense and they don't end up having to be litigated for a decade after they've been passed um, very often don't score well <laughs> on those report cards right and so uh, I I think for the good of democracy you know they're there there are some that are simply better than others though and I think what's best for voters is to kind of just Check in with the candidate you're looking at to the best of your ability. Uh, try to be in a space where you can ask them questions, look at the content and the media they're putting out for themselves, but then kind of sift all of those scoring parameters accordingly because um, you know some of them are meant to be purely political and some of them have a really narrow focus that probably doesn't get to the breadth of, of what that person has done in their career. Yeah, the reason that a couple of these really resonated with me is because there are certain things, as you well know, that uh, are very, very important to me, especially legislation that affects small business owners. Yeah. Uh, you now, how right now with what's happening in Israel, I got an email from my cousins in Israel just this morning about what's happening there and how often they're having to go into their bunkers, um, their their shelters, I should say. Um, you know, so there there are political issues, uh, foreign policy issues, very, very important issues. But you know something. If we can't agree on democracy itself, we there's there's nothing else for us to talk about. That's why 
you know, Operation 147 or the GOP Democracy Scorecard are very, very clear prisms for me to assess it. We have yeah. nothing else to talk about. You know, I could, uh, somebody like um, this, the squad, very, you know, far left, get a lot of press, um, you know, but I, I could see myself being in a room with folks like that because I think they share the same sense of reality, frankly, or mm -hmm. the same sense of decency or the same sense of being able to engage with somebody that you might disagree with about, you know, whether life starts at conception or, you know, how you would prioritize uh, life issues. Uh, I could still have a conversation with folks like that, but I can't have a conversation. We can't even be in the same room and have that dialogue if we disagree on democracy itself. That's why those things I think are very important, but that's not me as the, uh, the, the question asker interviewer. That's just <laughs> right. Well, yes. And, and I, potential constituent. A couple of things for, first of all, I, I hope your family um, remains safe and I'm glad you're in contact with them. But again, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, to each their own, if these are groups and affiliations um, tracking services, you've been following for a long time and you find that it, it, you know, it lines up with where your values and your perspectives are, by all means, you know, those are good measures um, that you should consult. But I think in this day and age, especially, you know, in this era of misinformation, um, just fake, literally, you know, fake news, like sites are generated all the time just for the purpose of having, you know, political propaganda out there. Those kind of scoring metrics end up being a part of that to greater or lesser extent. And it's just really important for voters, I think, to um, sift through and, and try to suss out which ones are are balanced and and a legitimate look as you said and 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 which ones are but yeah i you know i totally agree and i i have tremendous respect for aoc and and members of the squad and i think it's important for us to conceptually remember that's why we have a representative government that we do those women reflect the values of the districts that sent them there it's not going to be the same for every representative across the country so to whatever extent they can get in in the room with people like you mentioned and talk about okay what are the core principles we can agree on and where does that drive us in terms of legislation that we can work on together that's the kind of work we need to be doing and so all of these other systemic challenges, the, the amount of money in our system and, and where it comes from. And the fact that at this point, I think people are far more vested in um, keeping power than they are in leading the country. Those are dangerous and slippery slopes for us to be on. And so we've got to get back to the point where, okay, let's, let's start at the fundamental. We all agree that this is how our democracy should function. And one person, one vote, and the rule of law matters and move forward from there. I'm still jaded, but I wish you all the best. <laughs> um, maybe when I grow and up, I, I'll be and jaded too. I really too. hope that you, if you do come to Washington, will not only look me up, but will also make an effort to be as consistent in your intention to, to reach across the aisle on a personal level with other people in Congress, because I really think that's a, a big, a big piece of this. It's, it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. I agree. If you're elected to represent CA25, what committees do you wanna be on? Uh, labor and education, to be sure. I, I care very much about what the future of the working class 
looks like in this country and making sure that we um, keep decades old commitment to those folks, which we have through Republican and Democratic administrations um, and really elevating public education to the public policy platform it deserves in this country. Um, you know, it, it gets bashed more frequently than not, but I don't hear a lot of people talking about solutions. So I will be one of those people who wants to, you know, fly the flag for public education um, as a means of, you know, shoring up our democracy, making sure that everybody gets that same level playing field with understanding how this is all supposed to work to support them eventually and, and has access to opportunity. Yeah. Well, you're, you're talking to the right guy. Both my parents were lifelong educators and my brother was in education for the better part of 20, almost 25 years. And I think I told you this, Eddie is the most educated truck driver in the history of truck driving. I'm just going to yeah, quote you to you. Which is incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he switched over. Actually, just about, he, he was finished with his training in his first year, just when we went into COVID. So he was still, in every sense of the word, an essential worker, just this time you know, he was, he was in his truck instead of in his classroom. So maybe um, he could do some zoom lessons while he's on the road. No, he tells this funny story that, you know, he was always a daydreamer and he was always staring out the window and his teachers often would say to him, Eddie, Eddie, wake up. You can't, you'll never, you'll never be able to make a living sitting on your butt and staring out the window. And now he's sitting on his butt and staring out his window and making a living doing it. So. We need his eyes open for that matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, Christy, did you have any questions for us? Yeah, so um, of the folks that you guys are going to be talking to heading into this next election season, like, what are you hoping to get out of the conversations? Are you looking to drive the narrative in any way? Or are you just looking to have more of a platform and a hearing of ideas? Yeah, so the, the title is a little bit long, but it says exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to talk about politics and religion without killing each other. So I want to have but as the, many The folks... Grim Reaper is not at your door. <laughs> I want to have as many folks no, from yeah, as we... many different uh, in the media, in politics, elected officials, academics that are talking about really important issues and seizing some of this conversation back because a lot of us spend way too much time listening to, to what I refer to as the screamers, uh, folks who are just using false rhetoric, folks that are that, that give us the illusion that we can't talk to our neighbors, that we can't talk to our relatives about such issues. And if we do, that we'll lose those friendships and we'll lose those and I would argue they've convinced a lot of people of that. It's they have, but I want to take yeah. some of that space back. That's yeah, what we're amen, trying brother. to do. Yeah, so yeah. there's there's going to be any number of folks that I just And Christy, you and I disagree on some stuff. We probably have sure. some things that we, you know, just uh, the, from the very first time we met that we've just, we would disagree about passionately. But the fact that we're willing to um, be neighborly about it and be yeah. in conversation about it and find those points where we can work together. <clears throat> I think mm -hmm. that's really important work that's being done. Um, and we want to do a lot more of it. We want to, you know, help to be a part of this growing ecosystem that believes in truth, believes in civility, believes that um, Mr. Rogers is a better representative of, of our best selves than, you know, uh, the, the ex-president, uh, ex <laughs> you know? Right, um, right. So that, that's what we're trying to do. Jess, what, what do you think? You're, you have a different perspective than I do. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm surrounded by the screamers. I know a lot of them personally. And I, and it's, um, yeah, I don't think that the ecosystem I'm in is a productive one for the country. It's, it has more entertainment value than it does with, does have, um, 
empowering the, the calmer voices. And I, I think that's why I've been appreciative of this opportunity to be a part of something where we do talk about ideas and podcasting gives you an opportunity to get to know somebody. I mean, I certainly feel like I could have a cup of coffee with you if, and when you do come to town, because, you mm-hmm. know, um, people are people and, and it's, it, it's been a long time when, when freshmen come in, you have this like quick moment in time where you can get to know them. And then they're sort of swept away into the machine. And um, I, I've watched it happen cycle after cycle. I don't want it to happen to you. I don't want it to happen to anybody. It's not productive for the country. You right. know what though, Jess, you know what you're really good at? <clears throat> Crossing the divide. <laughs> <laughs> She's a published, uh, Jessica is a, a published author. I just, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Come on, I mean, come on. Give us some love. No, Tell the, us about crossing it. the divide is about how to cross the divide. And it's, it's mostly cross-cultural competency. Mm-hmm. But uh, after January 6th, I got a lot of phone calls about how do we do this in our own country? And I, I hadn't fully grasped how uh, divided our own country was. I, I guess sort of statistically and ideologically I did, but not the, with the visceral, you know, when we watched what we watched on January 6th, there was just no denying how much pent up anger and frustration and um, willingness to defy all social norms, all political norms, and all all respect of a, of a piece of property that represents us all. I mean, the, the things that were left behind that maybe haven't even been published in that Capitol are not, you know, the people were defecating on the US Capitol, not right. because they couldn't find a bathroom. I mean, that's that that level of disrespect to the institution and and the way that that building has been a place for finding common ground and hammering out solutions. Um, it just underscored the, the sort of polling and statistics that we'd seen in, in a way that was just wrenching. And I don't think I'm alone in that, but I don't I don't know if until that moment I realized how much of of those of the skills that I write about with my just based on my background traveling abroad and, and reporting in different situations, you know, those are very applicable down the street. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think we could probably, you guys probably could do a whole series of podcasts on where we are with modern <clears throat> media and then the interplay of social media and how it's contributing to that. And I, you know, I don't know. I'm someone who grew up watching Walter Cronkite we're just so far afield from what yeah. news is now compared to what news was then. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we're ever going back. I mean, there's uh, one know. of the things I've, I've said, and, and I think this is on us and by us, I mean, the media is that we are the only profession written into the constitution and the first amendment. And yeah. when we fail to do our job to hold government accountable, we are, we are failing our part of what makes democracy functional. Absolutely. And that's a piece of this. I'm yep. a little bit more optimistic, I think, than both of you, because I think that there are. <laughs> I don't know how you stay so rosy. It must be the weather over there. <laughs> no, there are still really good journalists. You know, whether it's uh, Washington Post, there's so many good, journal- great reporters. Uh, there are, Bob but Costas they don't have the front- command of the audience the way Cronkite did or mm. the way Murrow did. Because where, they're, yeah. You know, they're, they're, where, where millions of people are sitting down and taking what they have with their reporting as gospel. Uh-huh. I mean, very good well-resourced and well-sourced reports are still, you know, incredibly attacked when they don't fill in the narrative that a given perspective wants them to. Uh, And that's part of the job. It always has been, but I just don't think the machine was behind the criticism the way it is now. Well, I think the democratization of media, including social media, is part of what the problem is, but I also think that's part of what the cure is. 
you know, I've already mentioned some independent media outlets that are favorites of mine, where I think some great journalism and some great commentary is being done, like the Dispatch, like the Bulwark, uh, but also institutions like Washington Post and New York Times. Maggie Haberman is a great reporter. Bob Costa is a great reporter. And believe it or not, I've seen great reporters on, on Breitbart. Uh, you know, they, they still get their, uh, their fair share of attacks in the comments section, but they're still doing pretty good reporting. The Washington Times. Um, yeah. So I think good reporting is being done. It just some of it, frankly, is just better civics uh, education so that we yeah. can be more discerning to find those good reporters where they're happening. But like you said, I think that's up for a whole other a whole other yeah. episode. Yeah. You, you could do we'll a whole back, series on. Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole series right there. Well, yeah, let's make absolutely. sure we uh, how can we find you, Christy? Uh, Christy for congress.org is the website. Um, I appreciate hearing from people and, uh, you know, my DMs are open on Twitter, all of those different, you know, social network channels that are available, but, but watch this race and follow this space. Uh, if the Democrats are going to hold the house, the path to doing that goes through California. And this is one of the California four that we need to get back. And Christy is C H R I S T Y. I guess we should ask given that, are you? Yes. Christy with a Y. Uh, Christyforcongress.org, you said, right? Right. Great, great. Well, Christy, thank you so much for spending the time with I us. Think had another I, question. Sorry, I have a, I have a oh, question. Sorry. Given that the path to holding the house runs through California 25, um, how much outside money do you think you're going to get in support of your race? And have you already been approached? I, I mean, I, we don't have the statistics on, on your fundraising um, right. for the, for the well, current cycle. But um, yeah, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of outside money. Right. Because we still have, you know, primary season to go through. It's way too early to, to determine what that outside investment uh, looks like. But as a candidate, you always have to assume that you're getting none. You know, you're really on your own. And especially when it comes to that independent expenditure investment. I mean, we are legally barred, prohibited from talking to those folks in any way. And so then it's just institutional support that you get from your own party, you know, and that comes after, uh, you know, winning a primary and, and making good showing. So, um, you know, it, it came in for me last time, hopeful that it will be there again this this coming time. Uh, I guess I have a one more follow up question. Do you have a sense of what the primary, uh, what the field looks like right now? You know, it's really hard to say. I mean, this district has, um, you know, because you've lived here, sometimes it's like the American idle audition of congressional districts because people from greater LA that are in these deeply safe blue seats where they've had the same member for years, anybody in the greater LA area who wants to run says, oh, well, I'll just say I'm running in CA 25. And so we end up usually with this kind of whole cast of, of characters who end up in our primaries here. But, um, you know, right now I'm, I'm the one with the name ID. I'm the one who's doing the work. I'm, I'm already taking it directly to Mike Garcia because that's who I'm in this race to defeat and, uh, you know, going from there. Yeah. And for what it's worth, you have already proven great resilience you, uh, you know, you lost your first race for assembly and then won two years later. So we mm -hmm. know it can be done. We know you have a great deal of resilience. You got me thinking, maybe I should move a little further up the hill uh, over the grapevine and challenge uh, Kevin McCarthy over there in that district. <laughs> there you go. That would be awesome. I would like that. <laughs> well, and <Christy>. scene. <laughs> <laughs> Chrissy, it was so great to spend some time with you, Jessica. It's always great to spend some time with you. You're turning into a bit of a tzitzkamacha like my dad. You know, you know what that is, right? I'm upstaging you? No, 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 no. Well, yeah, you well, are. he does. But rightfully <laughs> You're so. You're rightfully so. In both <laughs> cases, you should always upstage me. You deserve it. Uh, no, my grandfather had this expression, but it was a mis mispronunciation of a Yiddish word. 
the proper Yiddish word is tsuris macha, which is um, give me sorrow. Uh, no, it's um, trouble. Uh, yeah, like tsuris, like trouble, troublemaker. Yeah. But my father, my grandfather, for some reason, called it sitzkamacha, which is string maker. So I said, Zaid, what are you, yeah. what are you calling me? Yeah, I'm and, sorry. I I know enough Yiddish to to know what tsuris is, but not <laughs> enough to be able to translate. Yeah. <laughs> Well, my, my grandfather, to... in his own way, he said, as he said, well, it loses its meaning in the translation. And I said, well, try to translate it for me. He said, okay, Tzitzkamacha, if bullshit was electricity, you'd be a powerhouse. That's a Tzitzkamacha. So <laughs> <laughs> we just got, we just earned our, uh, our explicit rating. So there you go. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. Drop the mic, Mike. Drop the mic, Corey. (laughs) Drop it. No one to exit. All right. Thanks so much. It was so much fun hanging out with you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.